So we've been talking uh, this semester through these series of stories in Exodus and how uh, they really became so much more than just bedtime stories for Jewish children, uh, but, but represent the, the, the very framework of what it meant to be the people of God, how God was fashioning them. And what we find today is, is that God has fashioned these people to prepare themselves for conflict, for warfare uh, with other people. Now, look, I don't know if you're anything like me, but there are two topics that when religious people typically launch into them, I get a little nervous. Things get weird. Topic number one is when the people start talking about the end times. You know, the book of Revelation, right? It, it's almost like, hey, there was a new news item about something that happened in the Middle East, and suddenly a spate of books come out about how this is clearly the sign of the Lord's eventual coming. The second topic that kind of makes me nervous is when people start to talk about spiritual warfare. You know, when I was in college, I was actually in a number of Bible studies uh, where people were very emphatic about how they did spiritual warfare. They were, they were, they were binding Satan, exegetically uh, doubtful, dubious concept at first. But I remember they would claim dominion over things, everything from like parking spaces at Walmart to their children's bedrooms at night. Things just got weird, right? But, but I've come to see that my main sort of beef with you know, spiritual warfare thus conceived is that it, re- it fails to, say, to understand that in the Christian life, the brokenness of the world is not a static thing, but it's dynamic. Uh, spiritual dis- disintegration is a cancer. It, it's not just a state of mind. Rather, it's something that's growing. It, it moves and multiplies and infects. And so therefore, if there's a soul uh, or a neighborhood or a race or a nation, whatever, that decides that they're going to turn to God they can rest assured that they have signed up for a struggle with brokenness, period. It's inevitable. And there's a couple features in this story that I think sort of suggest this to us. Feature number one is the fact that this battle occurs before they get to Sinai. Look, we've left Egypt, been through the Red Sea. Sinai is where we're headed, the great confrontation with the people of God before the law of God as it's given. But all of a sudden, just barely after they get out of the gate, whammo, they're met with some resistance, And I think by placing this story in that location, it's as if Moses is trying to say, guys, you're going to need to get used to this. This is just the deal. Um, You got to prepare yourself for a lifetime of spiritual assaults and struggle with your own spiritual well-being. And so I think this is important. It's important to inform people who have signed up in any degree to follow God. Not only that there's going to be a struggle in that life, but what the nature of that struggle is. Some people seem to be downright shocked when all of a sudden life got challenging and hard once they signed up for this whole Christianity thing. But the deal is, it's always been this way. It'll always be this way for God's people. The second feature I find interesting in the story is one you may not have noticed, but it's the fact that God didn't ask, God actually asks the Jewish people to fight this time. Did you notice how weird that is? I mean, in the chapters before, God has basically unleashed what the world has probably never known when it comes to displays of supernatural power in crushing the Egyptians through the whole ten plagues. Well, now here comes the Amalekites, and this is too much for you. Who, who, who in the world are the Amalekites? <laughs> Why can't you just zap them, God? But it's almost as if the narrator's trying to get us to see, actually, in this part, I'm going to allow this sort of struggle to go through with this people, because I want you to share in my program of healing for the world. Look, remember the big picture, the big picture of Exodus. God is calling these people out 
so that they will eventually become a light to the Gentiles, that God through them will, will set the world to rights. And so they've been commissioned to establish a world of order, a world of holiness, and a world of beauty. And they're going to be the ones that participate in that. They are going to have a part in it. The joy of the Christian life is that God asks us to participate with him in this great healing project that he's doing in the world. So therefore, in our passage this morning, we want to figure out what we mean by spiritual warfare and what it means to engage in spiritual warfare. And I want to unpack it through sort of three ideas that come to us in the text. I want you to first of all, look at the enemy. Secondly, I want you to look at the prayer. Uh, And then thirdly, I want to consider the banner that Moses talks about there at the end. Okay, first of all, the enemy. Look, uh, the truth is we really don't know that much about Amalek, which for some people makes them think that the story is uh, historically dubious. I don't think so. The reason why is because it seems like God's judgment came true. No one remembers Amalek. They were officially blotted from memory of, of, of from human history. But that's not the real rub here, because for most people, when they read this story about God blotting out an entire people, they just don't like the fact of God being pictured talking that way. It seems offensive. Like This is beneath him to sort of talk that way, which is why I had Johnny read the Deuteronomy passage as well, because in verse 17 and 18, we find something interesting. Of, of, of the Deuteronomy passage, we find that Amalek actually attacked the Jewish people from behind, which was especially cowardly and especially cruel. Why? Because in the back of the line was where the women were. It was where the lame were. It was where the children were, which is why they say they had no fear of the Lord of them. Look, Amalek was not just some nation who you know, got a little bit uppity and, you know, to, to some certain point, and you know, the cruel Old Testament God came and zapped them from human history. No, 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 no. Uh, this is a group of people who actually have done something deeply and powerfully offensive to God's people. Which again, people push back. They're kind of like, yeah, okay, okay, okay. But does that really deserve the sentence that they got of eternal punishment? And I realize this is a hard question to answer, but I want to make a case for, yeah, yeah, this is what they deserved. I think so, because we don't, we don't read it carefully enough. Don't just pass this off as the Old Testament deity who's sort of temperamental, But God is saying something profound. He says, look, you need to get this, that if you are going to somehow oppose my people, the bond between me and my people is so strong. It's so clear-minded that if you you attack them, I'm going to take that personally. And I'm going to come alongside them, and I'm going to fight for them and with them and alongside them. In other words, God isn't playing around in this particular sentence that he levels. And remember, the Amalekites have not just threatened this sort of, I don't know, newly freed people fresh out of Egypt. They've actually threatened to thwart God's intentions to bless the world. That's the program. And these people, through their family, are going to go out and be the launching pad for that great blessing to heal the world. So in other words, the the Amalekites, they are life destroyers. (laughs) They are there to keep people from getting better. And so God's judgment is, nobody's going to remember you. You will not thwart my plans to fix the world through my people. Like, imagine for a moment that the, some, you hear about a remote tribe uh, in some South American country who has an indigenous people that have been infected uh, by the rapidly expanding you know, Western influence with diseases and whatever else. And they've fallen sick from the disease. They've even fallen into poverty because of the struggle that they're going through, uh, lacking the immune systems that they need to sort of resist them. Well, a neighboring country then decides, 
that they're going to send a large caravan of medicine and of food you know, across the border to help save these people. But along the way, the caravan is attacked. Uh, the medicine is stolen. The food's destroyed. It's all done by a gang of bandits, right, that were operating in that area. Now, here's my question to you. Once the international community hears about that on social media, how much mercy do you think they're going to have on someone who was on a mission that was like that to save that many people? It would not be friendly. (laughs) Is anything friendly on social media these days, right? But that's how God feels when Amalek attacks. You are not going to thwart my purposes to bring blessing to these people. So yeah, they deserve it. Okay, so before we move on, how do we apply a, a point like this? Well, I think there's at least two ways. The first one is this. God is committed to his people, and that means he's committed to you. I actually think there's, a, there's kind of a powerful, encouraging sentimentality that comes with God kind of coming along to fight on behalf and with and alongside his people. I mean, look, as soon as these fresh little spiritual babies are leaving Egypt uh, and, and, and a foreign government steps in to try to make their lives miserable, you know, here comes Yahweh who's like, no, 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 you don't. These people, they belong to me. You mess with them and you're messing with me. I love the fact that it's as if Yahweh is not just becoming their father. He's kind of also becoming their their muscle-bound big brother as well. (laughs) To come alongside him, to encourage him, that's encouraging. I do think it's worth us taking regular regular moments to to ask what it means of what kind of confidence we would have as a gathered body of people who are trying to follow Jesus if we really knew the mighty power working power of the God that we're serving, like if we really were convinced of that, that that he told us that that the gates of hell will not prevail against the advance of the kingdom, that this Lord that we serve is no smallish deity. The governments of the world and, and the power brokers of this life, they do not rise to the level of threat in his economy. While I was preparing, I thought about um that great line from David before he becomes king of Israel when he goes out to face Goliath. And he looks over at the Jewish people and he's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who mocks the armies of the living God? David is someone who understands that the power of God is itself empowering to his people. Got to remember that. But there's a second thing I think that's interesting as well. God commands his people to go out and to fight, which means that he's going to come along and fight with you. And what that means is he is deeply and powerfully committed to seeing your personal transformation be seen through to completion, which is encouraging and it's terrifying (laughs) because it means that there is no place in your life that he's going to leave untouched. There's no area that you'll hide from him and be like, well, everything but that. We, 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 we sort of glibly quote Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of the Lord Jesus. We're like, isn't that nice? Answer, no, it's not. It's hard. It's challenging. It means there'll be conflict and there'll be struggle. struggle. God is committed to the transformation of his people. Wonderful news and also sobering news. Because that's the first point, this enemy that they're facing. Secondly, though, I want you to notice the one who's praying, the prayer, Moses. So it's time for the battle. Moses heads up to a little mountainside, a little hill nearby him, so he can watch it all go down. And in his hand, he has the staff of God. You know, the thing that he sort of stuck the Nile with, he was part of the Red Sea with, he's got it with him. And every time he holds it up, the Israelites prevail. But when he gets tired and it starts to droop, they start losing in battle. 
Now, what in the world does all this mean? Well, you got to admit, it's an awfully strange story, but it is a, there's a little bit of a morbid uh, fascination with trying to see how hilarious the, uh, uh, the fanciful interpretations of exactly what Aaron and her stand for. What could it mean? What does it mean that they're there beside Moses? Uh, I, read, <laughs> I read one that, that said, well, Moses is a type of Christ, and he has his hands stretched out like Jesus was on the cross, and so Aaron and her must be like the thieves on either side. Okay, no. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's a little too fanciful. And the text, but by the way, note to self, if there's an interpretation that you come across that would have made not a lick of sense to its original hearers, you, you might want to reconsider what you're uh, thinking as far as that atmosphere. Look, I just want to return to a really important point in our study, and that is when you get to something that's hard to understand in the Bible, you, you, you don't use your common sense. You go to the other places in Scripture where similar ideas are presented. Scripture interprets Scripture. That's what a faithful Bible student uh, lives by. So the question is, why does Moses have his hands raised? That's the first question. Well, as it turns out, that was a common posture of prayer all throughout the Old Testament. You've got Phil Riken who says this. He says, Moses was in a posture of prayer with his hands up. He was standing with his arms raised to God. Israelites generally stood when they prayed, lifting their hands to offer their praises and their petitions up to God. For example, when God brought an end to the plague of hail, Moses said to Pharaoh, I will spread out my hands in prayer before the Lord, Exodus 9. Hannah and Jehoshaphat both stood in the temple to pray. The psalmist says, in your name I will lift my hands, Psalm 63. This is still an appropriate posture for prayer in the church today. For God says in 1 Timothy 2, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. So that's what's going on. It's not mysterious, and it really shouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> Moses is leading these people to the promised land. And the second they encounter an enemy, he takes his post on the hillside, which is trying to let the Jews know that, look, alongside your physical battles, there is a spiritual battle, which is equally, if not more important than what you're going through physically. There's a spiritual thing going on. And so what he's teaching us about is the importance, the centrality, and the power of prayer. He's up there praying for his people. Spiritual warfare is this key component of what it means to be the people of God as we encounter the forces of the world. Because how are you doing? Whenever I get to a point where the preacher starts to talk about prayer, I get a little, I don't know, I get a little, I shrivel just a little bit. Because prayer is always one of those things it's very easy to sort of feel really, really guilty about because of how little you do it, how rarely you think about engaging in it, and I get distracted every time I've ever tried. But I do think that this passage gives us a couple of insights that might help us as we sort of work around. And the first one's simply this. Notice that Moses' hands are lifted to God, and in verse 16, we find out what they are lifted to. Look what it says so that he can take hold of the throne of God, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, he says. In other words, what Moses focused on in his prayer was the object of his prayer, not the fact of his praying, which I find to be a very big deal. Is it possible that one of the reasons why we get so bored in praying, uh, we get uninterested, is the fact that we're thinking about the activity of praying more than we're thinking about the person to whom we're talking. So Brian Sorgenfry and I were on a plane a number of years ago when he handed me this little booklet by a guy named Michael Reeves called Prayer. And it was so short we read it there on the plane together because it was really transformational for me. And this was the quote that kind of moved me. He says, when you begin to default to thinking of prayer as an abstract activity, 
like a thing to do. The tendency is to focus on prayer as an activity, which invariably makes it boring. Instead, focus on the one to whom you are praying. Remind yourself of who you're coming before. That's a great help against distraction, and it really changes the prayer. I love that thought. Prayer should not be focused on the praying. It should be focused on Jesus. We have to keep our internal conversation focused on Him and stop worrying so much about externals. But the second thing I think the passage shows us is that prayer actually is more engaging when it's done in community rather than when it's done alone. I think nobody ever thinks about this because prayer is always that thing by myself. That's my own business while I pray. Don't interrupt me. That's not the picture here. (laughs) The prayer that Moses is engaging in comes alongside with Aaron and her who are helping him in his prayer. But we are not going to make any progress as a body as long as we're attempting to grow spiritually in isolation. That's the whole message of this entire series of Exodus is that you are formatted. You ha- your spiritual DNA is set to ha- need relationship, to need community. And the sum effect of all these people in your life is so that we can seek him together as a people. So I think the lesson of this passage is that there's really something even more effective when our prayer happens together, even more so than when we're by ourselves. Interesting. Stuart Briscoe tells a wonderful little uh, illustrative story about this, about a group of New England fishermen who had been off of the shore fishing all day uh, when a winter storm came up very suddenly. And uh, the men rowed very desperately to sort of reach the safety of the harbor, and everybody made it except for one elderly gentleman by the name of John. He had almost reached the mouth of the harbor when a wave came up and scooped up his boat and dashed it against a rock, uh, and he managed, somehow he managed to kind of pull himself up and sort of cling for dear life on the side of this rock. Well, his friends, as they rode in, saw the whole thing that happened, <clears throat> but there was nothing they could do about it. And so it was there in the dark, and the waves were high. All they could do was wait. But they built a bonfire on the shore in the hopes that maybe he could kind of see it. And every once in a while, one of the men on the, on the, on the shore would throw up their hat into the air in the hopes that maybe he would see it. Of course, at last, the dawn breaks and the winds sort of die down, and they were able to go out and rescue the old man and try to nurse him back to health. Well, in the days afterwards, the, fire, the, the fisherman asked John, man, what was it like out there? He was quoted as saying, well, <clears throat> it was the longest night of my life. I made out pretty well at first, but then a big wave came along and just flattened me out, and I was about ready to give up. But just as I was ready to let go, I looked through the darkness, and I saw somebody's cap going up in the air. And I said to myself, if there's somebody who cares enough about old John to stay out on a night like tonight, I guess I'm not going to quit yet. Just then the wind seemed to ease up and I got a fresh hold and well, here I am. You see, that's the sentiment. There ought to be a time in which I can look back in my life and say, I was clinging on for dear life and I didn't know if I could hold on, but somebody showed up. Somebody showed up. And even if it was just kind of a signal flare of a signal saying, I care enough about you to sit and to wait and to stand beside, to come alongside. That is the place where community is forged. That's the place where healing comes. And that's the direction of our prayers so that we're upholding each other in a real life community. So look, there's an enemy that's out there, yes, but there's also a prayer (laughs) that is there watching over us and praying through us as we do. It's a different way of looking at prayer, I think. 
Thirdly and finally, I want you to notice that there's also a banner. Um, look, don't look at this story as if this is Moses kind of doing a magic trick, you know, with the, with the, with the magic stick that he's got with him, some sort of superficial victory that he secured. Um, there's, a, there's a commentator named Nahum Sarna who basically says that when Moses is holding up his rod, uh, he's, he's giving, this is his quote, a conspicuous signal that signified the presence of God in the Israelite camp, or what you might refer to in military terms as a banner. It's a banner. It's a conspicuous symbol to direct the people of God. This is the reason why Moses at the end of the place names the place Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord, my banner. Okay, so what is a banner? How did that function in the life of a military people? Well, Phil Riken says this. He says, a banner is a military standard. It's a piece of cloth bearing an army insignia raised on a pole. Soldiers always look to their banner. It establishes their identity. It helps them know who they are. On the battlefield, it helps them keep their bearings and gives them courage and hope. As long as their banner is still flying, they know that the battle is not lost. Okay, now you can see the significance of what's going on on the mountain up there. Moses is holding up a symbol that said, look, it is Yahweh who fights for you, with you, and through you, and for you. So press on, but do so in the knowledge that the victory is His. And with him, you cannot lose. And so this standard that he's holding up is a way of them being reminded of who they really are. This brand new sort of corporate identity that they have post-Egypt. To let them remember, you have already been freed from slavery. This has already happened. There's an interesting connection between this idea and, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, which goes like this. Paul says, look, therefore... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Uh, So which is it? (laughs) Who is working? Am I supposed to work with fear and trembling? Or is it God that's working both to will and to do? Of course, the answer is yes. (laughs) Both. They're both true at the same time. But there is a mindset that is transformational for a Christian when he realizes that what I am fighting to remember is what I have already become in Christ. Our struggle is to remember and appropriate the implications for what God has already established on our behalf. Look, if you really think about this, everybody's got a banner of some sorts, right? Everybody has an emblem of hope, a sort of place where you go to for courage when times are difficult. A Christian is just one who has found the power of God and salvation to be that center. And the fact of that is it comes over time means that it gives people a sense of saying, my struggle is not to be free from sin. But what I'm, I'm actually simply, I'm not struggling to be free from sin. I'm free to struggle with sin. It's incredibly different. Look, think about this for a second. Like, do your struggles with daily battles for your life, do you do so in the posture of a slave? Or do you do so in the posture of of a child. Because getting clear on this is the key to victory in spiritual warfare. Are you struggling to be free from sin or are you free to struggle with sin? Look, answer that question and you're going to have reached the heart of spiritual warfare. When I was in college, we had to read uh, Dante's Inferno about the sort of trip that Dante makes down into the, the lower levels of hell. 
And on one particular level, he looks across and he sees a group of people running and chasing someone who has a banner, but they never catch him. Listen to his quote. He said, I saw a banner there up on the mist, circling and circling. It seemed to scorn all pause. So it ran on and still behind it pressed a never ending rout of souls in pain. I think this is so profound. People need a standard, a standing for their identity and security. But it is hell to feel like you're chasing it, but can never get it. It's the definition of hell. Some of you bear witness to this. What Dante is saying is to not actually know that you're in possession of the salvation you're trying to work out is the thing that's killing your advance. It's the thing that's crushing the attempts. That's the difference. Look, what if our greatest spiritual problem is that we're trying to defeat the Amalekites without believing that we ever left Egypt? That's the difference. There's no way that it's a coincidence that we hear for the first time who the general is down on the field. His name is Joshua. Or in Hebrew, Yeshua. Or in the Greek translation of Yeshua, Jesus. (laughs) That's got to be it. Because the Lord is our banner too. But you know, in a way that Moses probably could never have imagined. In Isaiah 11, chapter 10, the prophet says, The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for his people. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. That's the idea. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus has a banner. It says he is the banner. He is the one who has won something for us. He's the one who's, made, who's established the fact that the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. It's a pronouncement of something that has already been done, that we've been asked to step up into. It's an advancement of freedom. And for those who believe... It's the power of God to change and to pray and to fight and to advance the kingdom of God. So here's a question. So what's the news from the front lines of your life this morning? (laughs) Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you then give us the grace to partake of this table before us as those who need to be helped. We long to be fed, Father, on what you will feed us and the joy that comes from knowing you. So would you remind us this morning comfort us, draw us in, so then in the end we can say that we have met with you. But we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.